Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we are in chapter number 7. We begin a new chapter. And as we've been working our way through the book of Luke, we've seen many instances where people are amazed at Jesus. And that's no surprise. It would be unusual, I guess, if God became a human and people weren't impressed. Uh, Back in chapter 2, they were amazed at 12-year-old Jesus, you may remember, and his understanding of theology. In chapter 4, the people at the synagogue in Nazareth were amazed at the speaking ability that Jesus had. And then later in chapter 4, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He taught there, and people were amazed at the authority with which he taught. Their amazement grew when Jesus commanded a demon to leave a man in the middle of the synagogue there, and the unclean spirit obeyed. In chapter 5, you may remember Peter and his fishing partners. They were amazed at the amount of fish that Jesus had led to their net, And then when Jesus commanded a paralyzed man to walk, the crowd was amazed when the man instantly stood and walked. Luke tells us that amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. It's no surprise that Jesus would be an amazing person, and that Luke, throughout the gospel, he's gone to great lengths to show us that Jesus was God become human, and so... God in a human body is quite an amazing thing to see, and people around him were constantly amazed. Our text this morning, however, is unique in that it records an event in which Jesus is the one being amazed. He is amazed at the centurion. It's the only time in the Bible where a man so impressed Jesus that he is said to have marveled or been amazed. The man who was the catalyst for Jesus' astonishment is the centurion at Capernaum. A Roman centurion, he was stationed there. We don't know his name. This is the only time he's mentioned here in the parallel account in Matthew 8. It's the same story. Uh, The centurion may be a a term that you're unfamiliar with. It literally means a commander of a hundred men. That's why the word century is in there. Uh, Now, that wasn't a hard and fast rule. Sometimes centurions had less or more soldiers under them. Uh, But this was a, a relatively high up official in the Roman army. As we've mentioned before, Israel was under Roman rule during the lifetime of Jesus, and it's important that we understand this because it's crucial to understanding certain texts throughout the Gospels like ours this morning. The Roman Empire had conquered Israel, and Roman soldiers were occupying the land. The Jews in Israel were subject to Roman laws, including paying their taxes to Rome, which, of course, they hated. Soldiers stationed throughout Israel were basically like police. They weren't necessarily going out to war every day. They were more like uh, peacekeepers within Israel. They enforced the laws. They took taxes from the people. And so a centurion would be something like maybe a chief of police having 100 officers under him, something like that. This was a high-up official that was uh, stationed in Capernaum. We've mentioned this before, but the Jews hated Rome. Uh, They despised having this empire over them and oppressing them. They wanted to be a free, independent nation. And so they were hoping that their Messiah would come and be a conquering military leader like Joshua in the Old Testament. They wanted Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government. That's what they were looking forward to. And so when Jesus enters the scene and he's preaching things like, love your enemies, it wasn't exactly resonating with the people. This was not what they were looking for. They did not want to love the Romans. They wanted them gone. 
So as much as the soldiers were hated by the Jews, centurions would have been even more hated. Again, these are higher-up Roman soldiers. They were enforcing taxes and rules on Israel, and they were representatives of the hated Roman Empire. We're going to pick up our story in verse 1 of chapter 7, where Luke writes, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. So this event takes place immediately following Jesus' sermon. We saw his sermon in chapter 6, uh, verse 20 and following. Jesus preaches this sermon, and then immediately he enters into Capernaum. Uh, verse 2 says, A certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. So the centurion in Capernaum had a slave who was sick. Now there's many surprising things that happen throughout this text, as we will see. But the first of which is the fact that this rich and powerful Roman official cared about his slave. That was not a normal thing. Uh, slaves were considered property. They were treated like a tool. In fact, many, if you read writers of that time period, if your slave was unproductive for some reason, if he was sick or something, uh, you were supposed to just get rid of him. That was normal practice. But this centurion cared about his servant. He loved his slave. That's the first surprising thing. The slave was at the point of death, and he couldn't be brought to Jesus for healing because he was paralyzed. We learn this from the parallel account in Matthew. It gives us a little bit more detail. Matthew 8, 6 says, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy. That just means he's paralyzed, grievously tormented. And so that sets the stage for the conversation that follows. We had this centurion, this Roman official. He has a servant who is sick. He's uh, apparently in a very painful condition, about to die. And we'll break up the remainder of our text into three parts. First, we're going to see what the Jews thought of the centurion. And then we'll see what the centurion thought of himself. And then lastly, what Jesus thought about the centurion. We'll start in verse 3, when the centurion hears about Jesus. Verse 3 says, When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Now again, this should strike you as very odd. This is a Roman official and he sends Jewish religious leaders to go represent him to Jesus and ask this favor. It's not normal that a group of religious Jews would come ask a favor on behalf of a Roman official. Again, the Romans were hated by the Jews. But this particular centurion had somehow earned their respect and favor, as we'll see. Verse 4 says, When they came to Jesus, so these are the religious leaders in Judaism, they come to Jesus, they besought him instantly. And that's not a great translation there. The Greek word just means earnestly. If you look this up in a modern translation, it'll say earnestly almost every one. So they come and, and they're begging Jesus. This isn't just something that they're doing, oh, okay, we'll ask him for you. No, they really wanted Jesus to grant this favor to the centurion. And so they besought him earnestly, saying that he was worthy, the centurion was worthy for whom he should do this. It's already unheard of that Jewish elders would come and represent a Roman centurion, but Luke points out the sincerity of their request. They were begging Jesus, please come and heal the Roman centurion's servant. And they do this on his behalf because they highly respected him. Notice they say he's worthy of this favor. Remember, these are Jewish leaders talking. We hate the Romans, but this centurion is a really great guy. Somehow he was an exception. And we see the reason in verse 5. It says, He loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. So the elders of the Jews respected this centurion. This was very abnormal. But uh, these, these Jews seem to respect this man because he respected them. Uh, this centurion respected the Jews and their religion so much 
that they felt that he loved them. He loved their nation. And he even funded the construction of a synagogue there in Capernaum. And uh, just as a side note, if you go to Israel today, you can actually go to this very synagogue. It's still there. You can see the foundation stones from the first century. You can walk right in there. And the centurion is the one who built that synagogue for them. He funded the construction of it. And so we've seen the Jews' opinion of the centurion. They respected him. They considered him worthy of this favor. Next, we'll see the centurion's opinion of himself. Verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. So he's on, on the way to heal this slave. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Notice the centurion refers to Jesus as Lord in verse 6. We'll refer back to that later. Verse 7, Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. So Jesus begins to go with them to heal, heal the servant. He's on his way to the centurion's house, and, and a group of friends, some more representatives of the centurion, come to Jesus again. And this time they say, stop, please don't come any further, because the centurion did not consider himself to be worthy of Jesus coming into his home. Uh, the Jews had said of the centurion, he's worthy. But the centurion, after hearing that Jesus was on his way, was overwhelmed with the sense of his own unworthiness. And so he displays humility. Not only humility of himself, he doesn't consider himself worthy to even meet Jesus, but also he has total confidence in the ability of Jesus to heal his slave. He says, Jesus, don't trouble yourself. You don't have to come to my house because I'm not worthy to have you in my home. So just stay where you are, command the servant to be healed, and he will be. And he gives the reason for this confidence in verse 8. He says, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. The centurion understood authority as any good soldier would. He gives an order, and the soldiers obey. He tells his servant to do something, and they do it. And so the centurion seems to have understood Jesus' authority. He was attributing to Jesus ultimate authority over everything by this statement. He views uh, the, the molecules and the cells inside this man's body as servants to Jesus. He, he thinks that Jesus can simply say, give, give orders to the bones and muscles of this paralyzed slave and they will have to obey. And so there's no reason for you to even come to my house. You can stay right there, give the order, and my servant will be healed. So the Jews had great respect for this man. They thought he was worthy of the miracle. The centurion displays humility. He doesn't consider himself worthy. He doesn't even consider himself worthy of Jesus to visit him. Next we'll see Jesus' opinion of the centurion in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. The word marvel means to be extraordinarily impressed by something. I want you to think about how strange of a statement that is. Jesus was extraordinarily impressed by something. That seems like an impossibility. Jesus knows everything. How can something surprise him? How can something be amazing to him? But when he heard these things, he marveled at him. He was amazed and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And essentially, Jesus is saying, this guy gets it. He, he turns around to the crowd of people that were following and he tells them, I have not found this level of faith in who I am and the authority and power that I possess in all of Israel. And remember, the centurion wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And yet this man understood who the Jewish Messiah was better than the Jews did. 
Notice he says, I haven't found this level of faith in all of Israel. This was a rebuke to the Jews. They should have seen who Jesus was. But among all the Jews that Jesus spent most of his time with, they did not display this kind of faith. Jesus was amazed. And he grants the request of the centurion. Matthew records this statement in Matthew 8.13, the parallel passage. Jesus says to the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Luke records uh, the friends, they go back, the representatives of the centurion, they go back to the house. And verse 10 says that as they went, uh, they that were sent returned to the house, they found the servant whole that had been sick. And so that's the conclusion of the text. What do we learn from this? Uh, what conclusions should we draw? What sort of applications should we make from this text? A few things just practically before we get to the main point. Uh, we're going to draw some applications from the example of the man who amazed Jesus. And normally, preachers want to make all the focus about Jesus, and I think it's a good impulse. Uh, but there are occasions in the Bible where Jesus gives us a human being as an example, either positive or negative, to follow. And I think here we're in safe territory following this man's example because Jesus literally told us to. He turns him around to his followers and says, look at this guy. Uh, this is an example for you of the type of faith that I want to see. So a few things uh, that I'd like for us to point out. First of all, the centurion provides for us a great example in relationships. He was a Roman official who had gained great respect and favor from Jewish leaders. These uh, should have been enemies. They should have hated this man. And yet the elders of the Jews said that this centurion loved their country. They felt his love for them. By the way, this was not an elected politician. Uh, you know, politicians, they have to, especially in America, they have to gain the favor of the people, right? That's how they get reelected. They have to get people to like them somehow. This man had no reason for the people under him to like them. He was appointed by the Roman Empire to be over this specific area. So nobody was voting on him next election. Uh, and yet, he treated these people with love and respect such that they, they felt this. This man had a great relationship with the Jews. They felt loved by him and felt respected. He wasn't a Jew, yet he built them a synagogue to meet in every Sabbath. And so, I think we can say the centurion had a great reputation, even among his enemies, those who would have normally hated him just for the position that he had. And you know this, if you're a boss or you have people under you, there's a natural tendency for them to dislike you. Uh, we, we have a, a bent toward disliking those in authority over us. Uh, but this man provides a great example uh, about human relationships. Secondly, the centurion also displayed great humility. He's a man in a position of power and authority, and yet he recognized that he was unworthy for Jesus to come to his house. That's, again, a very unusual um, attitude for someone of his status. Normally people in power, people in uh, high positions, don't have low opinions of themselves. They don't normally get to that status with a humble spirit. But this man, even in his position of uh, power and even with his great reputation, he said, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that you should even come to my house. The centurion also displays humility in uh, the very first ver or the second verse of our text, where Luke tells us that the slave was dear to him. We talked about this earlier, but again, this is unusual. A centurion normally would not care about a slave. Uh, he was property. He was a tool. And yet, this centurion, he wasn't seeking Jesus to come heal a close fa family member or a friend, but a slave that he owned. This was very unusual. And so, with the mention of the slave that was dear to him, we see further the centurion's love for others and his attitude of humility. He didn't think he was better than somebody else. If somebody in a lower position was uh, suffering, he cared about them. 
Lastly, the man's faith was great. This, of course, is what Jesus points out. People thought that the centurion was worthy of Jesus healing his slave because of things that he had done. After all, he built a synagogue for them. So you should come and and perform this miracle for him. He's worthy because he did these great things. But that's not what impressed Jesus. It isn't until he sees the centurion's faith that he's impressed. The faith that shocked Jesus. The centurion understood who Jesus was and the authority that he possessed. And he rewards the man's faith. He heals the servant. But not before first using the man's faith as an example to rebuke his own followers. If you notice in the text, Jesus turns to those who were following him. And he says, I haven't found this sort of faith in all of Israel. Among you who should know who I am, I'm your Messiah, and yet you have not even understood who I am in the way that this Roman has. Matthew records Jesus' statement this way in Matthew 8. Jesus heard it. He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What he's doing there is he's saying, you Jews have largely rejected me as your Messiah. And so I'm opening this up to the Gentiles. This is where you start to see what's going to happen later in the book of Acts. And Jesus is praising this non-Jew and rebuking the religious people, the people that should have known who he was. And he's saying, you, are, you will be cast out for your unbelief, but this Roman centurion, it doesn't matter that he's not a Jew. He's going to be accepted because he has greater faith in me than even you do. This, Jew, this uh, centurion had never met Jesus He had never even seen Jesus. He had never heard Jesus teach. He simply had heard about him. That's what Luke tells us. He had just heard about Christ, and yet he had this level of faith in him. Reminds me of the difference between human judgment and God's judgment. 1 Samuel 16 is a very uh, often quoted text where we're told that God looks on the heart. Men judge each other on outward appearance. We see only what the externals, but God sees our hearts. I think we may be surprised on judgment day some of the people that receive a great reward. They might be people we didn't think much of. Perhaps some that we esteemed very highly because of great things they did lack the humility and faith of this centurion. And perhaps the main point of this text for us to apply is to trust completely in the authority and power of Christ. He can say the word and heal a slave just as easily as if he were there. He doesn't have to be present to answer our requests. The command of Christ must be obeyed because he has ultimate authority over everything in the universe that he created. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So... The first point here of our main application as we draw this to a close is to trust in the authority and power of Christ. And I think some of us, our problem is not that we don't believe Jesus is God, not that we don't believe he's not in control of everything, but we don't understand his actions. We see things in our world around us that make us wonder if God's really in control, why is he doing it this way? Why is he choosing to allow this? And I think the deficiency is on our side, not God's. I want to compare this to a child watching a professional pool player. Maybe you've seen some of these billiards people that can do unbelievable things. It's, it's ridiculous. I like to think of a child watching somebody like that, a professional, 
wondering why did he just send the white ball directly into a wall? But in reality, he's executing a trick shot. And with that one perfect action that seems illogical, he's going to bank it off a wall, hit another ball, and each ball will end up going into a different pocket. That's the way I think of God's sovereignty. We look at the very little action that we see, that white ball hitting the wall, and we think, you completely missed the ball. What are you doing here? But Jesus knows what he's doing. God is in control, and God is infinitely wise. Therefore, he knows what he's doing. And for us to question him is, again, like a child questioning a professional. The centurion refers to Jesus as Lord. Uh, many others did this throughout Christ's ministry, but the centurion seemed to actually understand the reality of Jesus' lordship. Uh, last week, maybe you remember how our text ended in Luke 6, that long sermon that we've studied the last several weeks. At the end, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? And he says, well, you use the title. You call me master. You call me Lord, but you don't follow my commands. The centurion understood that if Jesus is Lord, he must be obeyed. Just like he, the centurion, as an officer of the Roman government, when he tells the servant to come, the servant comes. And when he tells the soldier to go out to war, the soldier goes. When he says, do this, he does it. And that was the view that the centurion had of Jesus. He truly saw him as Lord. I think many of us who call ourselves Christians, at times we treat Jesus as our advisor, not as our Lord. We don't submit to his commands. Because submitting to Jesus as Lord means not only trusting that he is sovereign, he's in control over all, but also submitting to his rulings. The centurion understood uniquely who Jesus was. He understood that he was unworthy of even being in the presence of this man. He recognized that Jesus' lordship meant, means that he has total authority over the illness of his servant. He could say to the illness, be gone, and it must obey. Centurion was not a Jew, but he had come to grasp the most central teaching of the Bible, that the God of the Bible is sovereign over all. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And that God has become human in the man called Jesus. The centurion understood that Jesus was Lord. Let's learn from the faith of the centurion and understand that if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he has total authority over all creation, then he is in control. Remember who you're talking to when you pray. And trust in him the way that this centurion did. Father, I pray that each one of us would learn to trust you in the way that this man did. To trust that even though you're not with us now, you're not able to come visit our house now, and yet you can give the word from where you are, and it's just as effective. We can trust that when we pray, you hear us, and you're in control of everything. You can change our circumstances. You can change anything if you, if you choose to. Pray that we would rest in that, that we would trust in your sovereign control over the affairs of this world and in your wise judgments in the way that you rule over us. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com. Or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.